yo 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 coming up on this episode of east screen west screen um we got a lot of news to cover we talk about it man free hong kong film awards the new television network here in hong kong a quick roundup of hong kong international film festival and we covered the anthology film trevisa This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, and coming to you from his post-HKIFF recovery resort is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I've recovered myself. Uh, it's been yeah, a while. Welcome back. Welcome back to the uh, the world of the healthy and the non-coughing. Yes, indeed. Thank you. It's uh, it's been a while. I didn't I didn't want to be away for this long, but uh, it was the perfect storm. I was caught between basically two rounds of the flu, uh, which really knocked me for a loop. Kept me uh, at home. Still got a slight touch of it, but mostly have recovered. Feeling good enough to record once again. But I did have to take a couple of days off work, and I ne- that's something I never do. It put me behind at work, and so slowly I've gotten caught up, and I've gotten out to see some movies, and we're back to talk about one of those new films. And that is the uh, latest anthology film, as Kevin said, Trivisa. So, yeah, it's been good. You've been busy, too. I mean, we've had a lot of things happen since uh, a month ago when we recorded last. Film art, we've had uh, HKIFF, right? We've had a bunch of news. So I think we're just going to dive right into it and get to some of the top stories and talk about uh, some of the things that have been happening while we've been away. Yeah, honestly, there there have been kind of so many things happening that it's kind of hard to do like a straight up um, overview of things that has happened recently. So I think just just a few updates, no, you know, not a lot of specific stories. But yeah, let, let, let's get into it, Paul. I mean, yeah, let's, let's not wait anymore. All right. So once again. At his news desk is Mr. Kevin Ma. All right, over here at the news desk. Um, it's, it's actually, by the way, it's good to actually be interacting with you on the show again. I mean, it was kind of cool to do that whole like separate recording thing last time, but but yeah, it's good to have you know someone to bounce off of again. Yeah, definitely. But anyway, okay. For first, a quick update on the uh, It Man Free box office fraud situation. Um, I believe last time on the show I talked about the investigation uh, uh, on being underway. A week after that, the film bureau, or I guess the um, authorities that be, uh, discovered that there were over seven thousand so-called phantom screenings of the film, uh, leading to at least I think fifty-six million renminbi in uh, fraudulent grosses. Sorry, I think it's 30-something million. I don't have an exact number. I wish I did. But anyway, it's like uh, something like 30 million in, ex- in in fraudulent box office grosses, which means that that number will be taken off of It Man Free's total box office take-ins in China. And the company distributor 
actually also admitted that they generated at least 58 million RMB in um, in box office revenue from screenings that they purchased, as in they essentially bought the tickets. But unfortunately, those do not count as fraud, and they will not be taken off the uh, the total box office gross at the end of the year when the Film Bureau releases the year-end figures. This sort of highlights a real first major sort of expose of these type of box office dealings. Last year, Monster Hunt got to the record essentially because Edgo in China bought out these so-called community screenings, meaning that they buy up all the tickets and they claim that they, they give the tickets to community groups and to to uh, social organizations and things like that. Now, whether those are true or not, um, we don't know, but the truth is that they paid up a, a pretty significant amount, essentially the number about about maybe in the tens of millions of RMB, essentially trying to uh, uh, get it past the record that was set by Fast and Furious 7. Now, of course, that's all useless now because Mermaid pretty much smashed that record within two weeks. But the truth is that I think we're only at the tip of the iceberg in that there are a lot of kind of shady dealings happening in the film industry in China, um, all sort of in the name of progress. And and I think that's what sort of made that makes that film industry so fascinating to cover because there are these so many. It's like the Wild West, right? That's why you know it's kind of worth uh, worth watching instead of talking about how Hollywood is baked there and blah, blah blah. It's kind of seeing how this this growing baby, essentially a teenager of a film industry, trying to learn what is right and what is wrong, uh, and and its way through through you know teenagehood in, in in a way and when would it sort of mature into this adult film industry where things actually work and things are actually done on like you know to buy the book so yeah that's that's the um sort of update on it man free i mean i w- don't think anybody should be truly surprised about this we heard these kind of rumors back when we talked about monster hunt uh last summer but i mean this is in line with with the party plan, right? This is basically film distribution with Chinese characteristics. Right? Mm, I mean, it's socialism, right? No, 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 no. That's different. That's different. That's different. Because okay, so what you were talking about—the whole boosting numbers for the sake of whatever—those th- are actually done in a way because, um, and we talk about planned releases. We talk about you know blackout periods. Those were related to to um, the government wanting to sort of keep setting box office records, but. This specific case, it actually has to do with much something much more sort of complicated in that there are a lot of P2P lending firms. Uh, we're talking about the distributor buying up, paying the minimum guarantee to raise stock prices. This is actually capitalism at its most absurd and its most like like blatant blatant capitalism at work here. Um, so so what they did was that what or what they suspected, what they allegedly do is that the company that bought the rights to distribute it man free, what they do is what they do is a minimum guarantee, which means they pay the producer or the film or distributor essentially, uh, a certain number of companies pay the distributor of film a certain number of money, saying that we'll take the rights and we'll pay this money. And we're betting that the film will gross more than the number we paid. Now, if it doesn't get to that number, then great. You keep that money. We lose. If it goes over that money, we keep a bigger share of the box office when it passes that line. Um, But what happens is that apparently the company that paid the minimum guarantee is actually owned or has actually business dealings uh, with the, 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 the owner of the distributor, distributing company, distribution company, which means it is it is sort of 
buying up, paying itself the right, trying to boost the whole um, boosting the value of the box office growth of the film, essentially to raise stock prices. And in the middle of it, there are a lot of these P2B lending firms that are essentially lured into helping helping to pay this minimum guarantee by with the distributor promising quick returns on their investments. So actually this is this is like I said it's very blatant capitalism at work here. Uh, unlike the the Monster Hunt case where it's it was almost like they wanted a Chinese film to beat the record. So it's a little different than but in a way also I think well Echo isn't a publicly listed company, so you don't have that. But I think with the with the financial industry sort of finding new ways to make quick money, I think was and, and a lot of um uh Bosses, essentially, a lot of tycoons trying to gain, make quick money with the movies. I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of these very complicated, complex cases of you know uh, creative accounting, essentially, to to make money off the film industry. It is interesting indeed, and we'll have to you know keep our eyes peeled to see what, if anything, comes of this case and perhaps future cases that uh, may follow suit. I do think that it's it's uh, worth pointing out too that. There was um, an expose on 60 Minutes this past Sunday at the time of recording. Look for the April the April 10th episode or the April 11th episode. They have a segment on the Chinese film industry, and they talk to um, the farmer who basically built this huge studio. They talk to an American who's working in production there on the producer side of things, and I think they also talk to uh, Li Bingbing. I haven't seen the video, but I went to the website and read the transcript, and it seemed like a you know, a pretty interesting segment, though it was kind of leaning a little bit towards the negative by the end because they talk about Hollywood in these co-productions starting to do self-censorship, basically, to be sure that, you know, their movies can fly and, and make muster in China. So let's talk about the big thing that we missed while we were away, and that is the Hong Kong Film Awards. Well, I didn't miss it, Paul. I, I watched it. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> we, we missed talking about it, basically. Yeah. Right. No, I'm just giving you a hard time. Come on. All right. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I did Kong. not watch it. I, I've given up on watching award shows. I just, I, I, I can't, I can't commit the time. And I just, I like seeing the results and hooray for the winners. Um, it was an interesting episode, to be sure, uh, based on, I, I'll, I'll leave you to talk about the main point of interest. But mostly I just find, you know, Oscars and all that stuff just super boring. Dude, my, my main point of interest is is Lee Chung Chi finally winning an action award. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, half kidding. Okay, yeah, the Hong Kong Film Awards happened a couple of weeks ago. I think a lot of you people have heard at least part of the results. But yeah, the big winner of the night is actually Port of Call, the film by Philip Young about the. Uh, we talked about the film here on the show already. I think uh, about a, a real life killing of a compensated dating uh, girl. The film won seven awards, including best cinematography, a total sweep of. All the acting awards, which means Best New Actor, Michael Ning, Best Actor, Michael Ning, Best Supporting Actress, Elaine Jin, Best Supporting Actor, Michael Ning. I don't know why he's Supporting Actor, by the way. Best Actor, Aaron, yeah, and Best Actress, Jesse Nee. And, of course, Best Screenplay as well. So, But, unfortunately, the film did not take Best Picture, even though, you know, seven awards is not a bad number to have. But before we get to the Best Picture, about some of the other surprises of the night, including, like, like I said earlier... Uh, Yuen Wapeng losing the Best best Action Award, uh, and Yuen Bun for, for taking a Tiger Mountain, both losing to Lee Chong Chi, who wins his first Hong Kong Film Award for Best Action Choreography for SPL2. I guess we'll come back to this later, because there are some kind of points of contention. People, Some people don't seem to agree with it. 
I for one don't mind. I, I actually think that um, that the action in in SPL two is quite elaborate, and I think that you know it does deserve the award. But of course, the, the biggest you know talking part of the night is the winning uh, of ten years, the omnibus film that some has I, I think mistakenly identified as anti-China. The film has been chosen for a few, few film festivals already coming up, uh, and you will find more about the film as you know it, we approach a DVD release coming in July or perhaps earlier. But the film is essentially very politically sensitive, and it talks about uh, a lot of these controversial topics, such as you know the the democracy movement, talking about dialect, the Cantonese dialect, talking about essentially um, raising possibilities that that Hong Kong might have its own version of the Little Red Guards, like the ones we saw in Cultural Revolution, things like that. Now, the win of the film actually very controversial because this led to several leading industry figures um, talking about how they don't disagree with the, the the win. They think that a film made for only 500,000 Hong Kong dollars doesn't deserve an award. It was made for $500,000, so therefore the, it couldn't possibly be a good film. Or the fact that it didn't get nomination in any other categories. Again, I will explain this why a little later. And because, you know, uh, it, it didn't get... Um, rewarded in other categories, so how can it be best film? Now, first of all, I think that there is no stipulation that a best picture winner must win another category to win best picture. There is no such rule, and I don't think such rule should exist. Second of all, it didn't get nominations in other categories because the film is made with five. It's five films. It's five crew. So when you have to nominate an actor, how do you nominate one actor, or how do you nominate one actor from one of the five films, or how do you how do you nominate one of the lighting guys and one of the cinematographer from one of the five films. You can't nominate one cinematographer for a film with five cinematographers, right? Um, and and um, I think, although I think personally, I think it should have been nominated for Best Screenplay. Um, so that's actually the reason why it didn't get nominated for other, other, other uh, categories because the, 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 the credits itself or the, the um, nature of the film itself made it actually very difficult to highlight individuals from the film because it is a very much group effort. Now, the argument of the $500,000, can $500,000 made a good film? Well, Fru Chen did actually a couple years ago because Made in Hong Kong, another Best Picture winner, was made for $500,000 Hong Kong dollars. I guess one argument that, that you know, totally defeats every criticism against this award is that those people who criticized the Best Picture award did not see the film. They have not seen the film. They don't know what the film is about. They just kind of read the newspaper. They read reports of what the film is about. Oh, it's anti-China. They're scared. So they want to criticize its win. They think... And also, actually, two of the uh, five main industry people that criticized the film's win, uh, Raymond Wong and Daniel Lam, they are producers of It Man 3 and Little Big Master, two of the Best Picture nominees that lost. So so I think that um yeah it's it's pretty much turned this farce of trying to to sort of discredit this film that was actually democratically elected, by the way, to win Best Picture. Actually the Hong Kong Film Awards is 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 elected. It's a it's an election. It, it is chosen by vote. It's not a small jury, it's not a small committee uh voting it's not like uh can when they voted for Fahrenheit um Fahrenheit nine eleven to win, to make a political statement. This is a the body, the Hong Kong film industry as a whole voting 
to tell to make this statement or to choose this film as a best picture winner. Um, so in a, in a sense, it is the voice of the people. Yet, nevertheless, these these sort of top figures of the industry they are they're sort of threatening the um, the the award committee to change the rules. Um, I don't know how how they can change the rules, but anyway, they're pushing for rules to change. They're not happy that this film won. I don't think they even really quite know understand why. So um, I don't know, Paul. Paul, I, I think yeah, you know, I know you haven't seen Ten Years yet, right? No, and I'm you know I'm desperate for them to release this thing on video already. Uh, they just had a new round of uh, ticket sales this past Monday. Two rounds, yeah. Um, two rounds and they're all, they're already sold out. And uh, um, it's, it's quite sad because the, the local distributor. Um, well, actually, we need to uh, go to the scene. The the company that's bought up the sales rights. Um, the global sale, right? So they have rights for everywhere except Hong Kong. Um, they even said they've actually tried to t- ask theaters to see if they want to show it again, and they all said no. They've all said no. Even, you know, this film is going to keep selling out. They keep saying no for some reason. Um, and, and actually, even though... I, mean, I read there was a, there's like a Kickstarter going on to, to get it screened in um, London, I think. It was like a chair, one and, a um, screening. Yeah. Um, actually, I, I'm not saying I agree with the strategy, but... What Golden Scene is trying to do is they have a couple of festival bookings already. They have uh, they're booking it. Uh, the newspaper, local media review that they're screening in Udine, uh, coming in April, uh, at the end of April in Italy. They're screening the film in uh, New York at the New York Asian Film Festival in July. So those are bookings already, and I think they're holding the film for the Cannes Film Market, trying to uh, sell it to a couple of uh, interested buyers, uh, hopefully in Europe. I know that that Paul, you have your stance about this. And and I have my stance about this, but I think that Golden Scene is trying to get the film out to as many audiences as possible. And the way to do this is kind of through festival screens, these sort of curated means of screening the film. Because honestly, you dump the film on, actually, 10 years is very much a local-oriented film. And I know it sounds like anti-China, therefore we all understand, but actually it deals with very specific local issues that actually do need sort of a festival catalog or, or a, a sort of a Q&A session or uh, um, to, to sort of explain the film context to foreign audiences. And in that case, I think the sort of curated mean of screening the film at overseas festival does work. And I know Golden Scene just bought the rights. They didn't get any of the, the local box office takes. So to them, they're still, still in the red with this film. So obviously they need to sort of make some money on their investments. So so I, I understand that they need to do festival bookings. They want to try and find foreign buyers. But they did guarantee that they will release the film on DVD and on iTunes this year, um, I think July or August. Even though actually now, because uh, there was a leak on the internet of the film, so they are considering uh, pushing up the release, I think, to sort of combat this 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 leak. But um, they do they do plan to release it this, on video this year. But I think that it's good that you know they, they held a community screening of the film the weekend before the Friday before the awards and it drew you know thousands of people it's a free screening and I and I think that it's kind of cool that they keep trying to do this community try to bring the film to the community try and bring more people to see the film uh, not let the, the theaters decide whether you can watch the film or not um, and I think that this film is best experience as a sort of a group experience I think there has been a lot of responses to the film especially to the self-immolation section people crying and stuff like that I didn't get that experience because I saw the film on a screener and I kind of wish I did get that experience and I think that film is still sort of best experience on a you know big group environment. I think to feel that 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 
that vibe together, uh, I think it'll make for more emotional experience. And I think Paul or and and me, we, we should both try and try and watch this film on the big screen. Well, if you get a chance to see it, uh, you know, definitely jump at it because. Uh, but I, I think Paul, there's a sort of a controversial top question I want to ask, though. Mm-hmm. I think that should bring up um, a lot of criticism. Sort of goes asking whether whether um, politics should have a role in film. A lot of criticism towards this film winning the award is that art should be art and politics should be politics. If people chose this film because of politics or people, you know, were moved by the film because of politics is wrong because politics has no place in art. What 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 do you think about that? That's baloney. Uh, art is all about politics. It always has been. I mean, exactly. our art is political by by definition. Mm-hmm. And I mean, whether you're talking about a movie like Philadelphia, you know, which is about uh, people dying of of AIDS and policies about that and the way people are treated, or you're talking about, you know, um, just this past year's Oscars, you know, the whole Oscar so white controversy. It's always political, and it's always going to be political. And it's it's a shame that you know some of these big producers that are taking the position they are, you know, as people who've kind of been in the industry forever. Um, who've who've made their mark? You know, I I know that okay, you, you you don't your film doesn't win, and you know you feel bad about that because this little upstart, you know, kind of comes along. But what's wrong with uh, you know highlighting a film that people the you know the public and the the the, the voters on the jury say is important? It's always political. I mean, look at look at something like uh, Ip Man, right? Ip Man's political. Whether we want to say it's more political than than pop, you know, those are things that, of course, can be debated, uh, no doubt. Founding of a republic, anything political in that? I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) Um, You know, so that kind of argument, I think, just doesn't fly at all. It doesn't hold any water to anybody who seriously wants to discuss and and debate art. I think I think what they really want to say is that it's not it's not that politics have no place in film it's just that your politics has no place in film yeah. um no I, I i totally agree i think that arch um politics is part of our lives we can't get away from politics there is no such thing as i i hate politics or you can't be empathetic about politics and still call yourself a responsible member of the community i think and i think that that politics always drives art um, I don't think always drives art, but I think it's an important part of you know motivation for art, and I think art can express politics. It, it can express anything essentially. So, so no, I think it's BS, and I think that as, as someone who's seen Ten Years, I think Ten Years may not be the best film in terms of you know we talk about technical achievement, we talk about writing. Okay, let's say come on, what a short. Let's let's face it, what a short is totally incomprehensible, and everyone knows it. Which is actually why I thought that it didn't have a chance to win. But Ten Years is, and I will say it again. I've said this before. I said it again. This is one of the most significant films that Hong Kong has produced in years because it is actually a film that is relevant to the society. It is saying something that is relevant. Whether you agree with the politics or not, look at Little Big Master. Okay, and that was one that was up for. Uh, you know, the idea best of best picture. They can tell me that's not political. Exactly. You know, how education. education is handled here locally. That's yeah. a very local political issue. Look at Port of Call. Okay. I mean, which swept the awards except for uh, best picture, best director, right? That's not a political film about, you know, people can't make it. So they turn to illicit means and, and crossing the border and all that stuff. That's not political. Really? I mean, yeah, it could be more. I mean, we argue that's social, and I think some people would actually argue a little bit master is social. Although I don't agree, I think education is 
a political issue. It is a political issue because politics, you know, puts in, you know, incompetent people to be in charge of the education system, right? Sure. Yeah. But I think that I think that politics has a role and I think that um the film actually I think that a lot like I said earlier, people a lot of people mistaken um Ten Years an anti China movie and it's not. I think that Ten Years it's a film that is anti political apathy. It is telling Hong Kong people to wake up and take a take a position. Essentially, wake up and see the society, and wake up and see the problems that are sort of enroaching in the society. It may not affect them yet, but it is a film that's just trying to wake people up from their apathy. So, to me, it is not an anti-China film. China, in fact, doesn't have to be scared of it. It is it is science fiction. It's a film about ten years. It's a film that imagines Hong Kong as ten years later. So it's it's not reality. So, but it's a film to tell people to be more politically active and politically take a more interest in their city's politics. And I think for that, it is really one of the be- one of the most important films to come out of Hong Kong. All right, let's move on. We're going to talk a little bit about a completely different film uh, called Book of Love. Yeah, um, Book of Love. Book of Love is um, what some people might know better as the sequel to Finding Mr. Right. The uh, original cast is back, Tom Wei and Wu Xiaobo. The original director, Shui Xiaolu, is also back. But why is it called Book of Love? Because the story has nothing to do with Finding Mr. Right. Yes, it's a completely new story, the same cast, and I guess the only common is the common point is that the film also is shot overseas. But that's very misleading because I've seen the trailer in cinemas and it says that something like their story continues. Yes, exactly. It's it's completely misleading. Um, I've no idea why they... Well, they do this to attract audience. I mean, I know exactly why they do it. But yeah, it, 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 it is a complete new story. That's why they changed the English title to Book of Love to make sure that you foreigners know that it's... Or foreign buyers know that it's a completely new story. Um, but anyway, the film is coming out in China at the end of this month. It has come out in Hong Kong on May the 6th. But before that, it is going to be opening the Beijing Film Festival this year. It is, I think, this festival is starting sometime next week or this week. But um, as far as I know, what I've heard is that uh, my excuse me, my sources tell me that the film's post-production is coming down to the wire. Uh, it is going to be completed very soon, and it will be ready for world premiere uh, next week. But uh, yeah, sort of a little fluff news, sort of in the middle of this section. What do you, what do you think, Paul? You, uh, did you like the first Finding Mr. Right? I did, and I was kind of excited when I thought that this was going to be a sequel. But if it's completely different, I'm less excited now. Um, and it's the same cast. I mean, was it because of the cast or the story that you liked the film? I like the characters in the film. I would have been interested to see, and because like when I when I saw the the trailer i'm like all right well wait where's the daughter where's the baby you know they they weren't showing any of those things from the first film so it's a bit of a head scratcher but it makes more sense now um but it makes me wonder too i mean are they just doing this as a sort of like a sleepless you know the first one was very referent to sleepless in seattle is this going to be more referent to you've got mail you know because that was about wasn't that about like books and and the big bookstore versus the small bookstore kind of thing yeah, that was about bookstores, dude. No, I, I, I think that um, I think it's a completely new story. I think I think the first film sort of wrapped up the story very well. I think it's perfectly fine. I don't think they need to do any more to to sort of wrap up the story. I'm, I'm yeah, no, I, I'd agree, but I was kind of intrigued. I'm like, all right, well, you know, what, what they must have something interesting more to say about the characters because the the first film ended in a very sort of solid place. But now right, I feel right. deceived and I feel angry. You really feel, are you are you, are you going to Hulk, Hulk smash on yes the Hulk show? smash oh dear um, <laughs> no um, I I personally 
I'm kind of glad there's a new story because I don't want them to sort of mess up the ending of the last film. I thought the film ended on like an okay spot. I don't need to sort of go anywhere new. I don't need that story to keep going. Mm. I thought it, it, it ended just fine. So I'm glad there's a new story. Yes, I do feel ripped off that that they're trying to sell as a as a as a as a, as a sequel of swords, which is very odd to me. But no, it's it's fine. I I, I am kind of excited to see the, the team coming back and see what they pull off. Although I don't think I liked the first film as much as you did, people did. But um, no, I, I I look forward to it. All right. The next, some news about the new Network View TV. Yes, um, we were talking about earlier, a um, couple months ago, I guess, about the, the TV station ending, the ATV ending. Well, ATV is officially dead. Um, a friend, listener of the show, Sani, uh, from Canada, also confirmed to me that the overseas feed of ATV is dead. So it is completely and utterly dead okay it is like buried yes. it is covered in dirt moment is... of media history people whether you know it or not yeah um um a, a recent comic book film spoiler there will be no gravitating stones at the end of the film <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> i think Paul's gonna choke <laughs> no it is dead and so comes a new TV network. Yes, PCCW, or um, the son of Damn You Lee Cushing, um, has a company called PCCW, and his now TV uh, now owns this free-to-air TV network um, called View TV, and launched uh, last week. Um, the the first complete week of broadcasting is about to end. Um, um, essentially, so now we've gone through one round of, of, of shows, a weekly schedule, a um, couple of shows that they have. They have uh, this hit Korean drama called Descendants of the Sun, which I guess, you know, some people are talking about. Um, it seems like their drama production is mostly buying up um, very big name productions uh, from Korea and Japan and China. Well, Korea is sort of their big interest because I guess it's cheaper to buy and, and it's sort of the, the flavor of the month. Um, so that's their drama offering. They have one meet, sort of 30 minute drama starring Bo- Bowie Lamb. Bowie Lamb. Um, that's showing, I think, on Mondays and Tuesdays. Um, that's based on actually based on a novel. Um, so it's quite well known. Instead, um, so instead of a dr- drama productions, they're more concentrated on reality shows. Um, there's a show called Traveling with Rifles, um, where uh, people of sort of different viewpoints or different ideas sort of go on trips the the, the first um set is uh two legislative council members who are on different sides of the uh, political spectrum going to poland uh we have a show called g1 where um girls uh or some models i guess they 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 learn um mm uh ufc fighting i guess so cage fighting and they they fight each other in the ring um but the one that I did watch over the weekend is a talk show. Um, it's a talk show called Real PK. Um, PK, um, if you know a soccer term or football terms, PK is the penalty kick, right? But actually in Cantonese, PK uh, stands for the word pokai, which means like like kind of douchebaggery, kind of asshole. But, but it's much worse. It's not that bad. Like actually TV, TVB does, even TVB allows it. Like sometimes you hear that word. So it's not like super like, it's not bleeped in on TV anymore, but anyway, that show star uh, is is hosted by a uh, film director Firefire or Lee Fire, uh, and a friend of his called KB, um, and it's actually the what they do is they they have five nightly talk shows, but five different sets of hosts. So there's a Saturday night one, and the first episode has uh, Lam Shud, 
the first episode of Slam Shirt, and what they had to do is they had to bleep out one third of the lines in the show. <laughs> because what they did is that they sort of let Lamb should kind of go off and the host sort of went off with him and they start swearing left and right. And of course Lamb is talking about um uh Johnny Toe and him screaming at people on set and uh how he um how Chapman Toe slapped him for real once in a movie and made him like and then just you know it was it was very fun. Actually it's a ton of fun and I kinda like this new new T V station because they sort of they're not it's not that they don't care but it's clearly that they have a very uh, clear demographic is that they're trying to get the middle age audience with Korean dramas, but yet they're trying to get the younger audience with sort of more out of the box um, uh, reality shows or with variety shows. Um, and, and I kind of like that. And I, I like that they, they, they set their warnings. They have their, you know, censorship limits, but they're not as careful as, as TVB in that like, we don't have, sh- we have shareholders, but they're not, you know, they're not watching TV network. They're not watching this TV network. Our TV business is not all the business we have. We have an online business. We make money off selling internet connections. All right, we don't we don't make a ton of money off TV station, right? So so they kind of had this cool new kids on the block kind of attitude, and that they're not really shaking things up, but they're kind of like, yeah, we have less we have less to lose. So so we're gonna kind of you know have more fun with it. So I kind of like this new TV network, and I think. Uh, as I said before, I think that new TV network it does help the entertainment industry because it does have give you know new chance uh, for new talents to shine, and it 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 does help uh, add in a whole new generation of talents. And a lot of Hong Kong talents in film does did come out of TV, so uh, perhaps this view TV will will sort of help um, uh, talents both behind the camera and in front of the camera. Paul, have you have you uh, do, did you have you checked out the new channel yet? Uh, I have not. In fact, we just did the, the, the complete cable cut. We got rid of our now broadband uh, last month because we found we just weren't using it. We weren't watching it. Um, we haven't watched any um, traditional network stuff since last summer, I think. The the Mioli Wu drama was the last thing we watched. And uh, we've just been consumed with uh, other stuff. You know, Netflix takes up a lot of time now. Uh, iTunes and uh, whatever like normal shows I see through VPN and whatnot, you know, um, just not a lot of time for other stuff, you know, movies and DVDs and and that stuff. So yeah, unfortunately, um, uh, View TV does not have an English network yet. Um, it is actually in their their license condition that they do have to create an English channel uh, eventually. Um, so I think they will launch that next year. And unfortunately, they don't have English subtitles on their shows yet. So yeah, unfortunately, you won't have you won't get a chance to take advantage of this new TV station just yet. Yeah. Finally, a quick roundup of the Hong Kong International Film Festival. Yeah, um, <laughs> I saw a lot of movies. Um, I saw a total of uh, twenty, something like twenty-three movies. About twenty-six tickets. I made it to twenty-two movies. One of them was canceled, so I only actually skipped three movies. I'm quite proud of myself. Uh, I remember those days. Three. Three is a good number for me, Paul. Three is actually sort of record low for recent years. Yes, that is. That is. I do know that in previous years, you've missed quite a few. Yeah, I missed like up to like, I think five or six movies, right? Actually, so percentage wise, I made it to so many of my films. I'm so proud. But, you know, the actually bad point is I didn't actually watch 23 new movies. 
or 22 new movies. Um, I did a one car wide day and I watched like Chunking Express and I watched Fallen Angels and I watched Grandmaster 3D and I watched uh, um, Chinese Odyssey 2002. So at least four of those films aren't new films. But um, no, it's it's, it's been a solid year at the film festival. The opening film was Chongqing Hot Pot, um, starring uh, Bai Bai He and and Chen Kun, which I did see. And it's sort of a, it's okay. It's an okay sort of caper film about these three um, uh, hapa shop owners um, that accidentally dig their way into the the, the bank vault next to their shop, um, and they need the bank employee played by Baba Hood to help them sort of take the money or to get away with this whole whole mistake that they've made. Um, and it turns into something you know quite interesting. Um, um, and it's fun. It's not a great film, but I think it's perfectly fine. It did a lot of it did good business in China. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, um, there's also um, uh, I watched. Um, I was supposed to watch the Mob Fathers, but I didn't. I ended up catching that later. And I'm not sure. Are we going to cover the Mob Fathers in a future show, Paul? Um, possibly. Yeah, I'd like to work it in if we can. But we've got a couple new films this week, which would be slated for next week. So we'll have to see. Um, right. What, what we can do time wise. Right. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about some of the you know best films I saw. I think um, there was a. A Kankuro Kudo, a Japanese uh, fantasy comedy called Too Young to Die, about a, a high school kid who dies in a bus accident, and ends up in hell, and with the the help of a a rocker demon in hell, he sort of re- he, tr- he he tries to reincarnate into back into a human being so he can finish some unfinished business, and that includes learning how to rock in hell. <laughs> um, that was a pretty fun movie. Um, there was a film called Paths of the Sh- of the Soul. A film about the uh, Tibetan pilgrimage to Lhasa, to the Holy Mountain. Um, it's a very, very interesting film. There's nothing political about it. It's about this this really difficult pilgrimage that the Tibetans take uh, through their religious, through the Buddhist, you know, uh, traditions to go on their trip. They they walk. They literally bow their way 1,200 kilometers to Lhasa. And it's a very fascinating film because it was shot, you know, these people, real characters, they're making the real pilgrimage. And yet there's a fictional story in there and it's a fictional film, but they're actually doing what they're doing in the film. And it's a very fascinating, very uh, visually splendid, astonishing film, um, which I highly recommend. Um, There was also Inside Men, a Korean political, not political, but okay, kind of political thriller uh, that is coming out mid April stars Lee Bun Hoon. Um, it's a very solid crime film. Um, is it is it stupid if I say that Doctor Javago was pretty good? I watched Doctor Javago for the first time, and no, I thought that's it was a, that's considered a classic film. Yeah, so is it kind of like stain the obvious when I say, oh, I watched it. It's pretty good. It's kind of yeah. so I think it's got a waste of time to talk about that film. Um, I saw a Korean film called Bacchus Lady. Um, that is uh, about um, and sort of. Uh, uh, senior senior prostitutes, older prostitutes in Korea. Um, it's a really fascinating sort of social satire. Um, I saw a the remastered version of uh, Ho Shao Shen's The Boys from Feng Kui, which was actually, I think, his first feature film. Um, it's about these boys from a small town called Feng Kui going out to Kaohsiung to, to find jobs and them facing city, big city life. Um, so yeah, it, it was another big, good, solid year. At the, at the festival and uh yes i only watched 23 films sorry paul mm. <laughs> i promised to try and watch more uh later the summer festival and i uh, watched more at the hong kong asian film festival and whatever um yeah it was still tiring dude it was very very tiring 
and it's part of the reason why we had to skip. How, how can I live vicariously through you if you're going to be such a slacker, sir? <laughs> you you have other things to live live you know vicariously for. In fact, I should be living vicariously through you, sir. Yeah, well, we'll debate that another day. <laughs> All right, I think that's going to round out our news. Uh, quite a bit of news this time uh, as we've caught back up on a few things for this week. So let's take a short musical interlude and we'll be back to talk about our film, Trevisa. <laughs> But you run my internet, so I can't. Okay, forget it. Damn you, Lee Cache. Damn you, Lee Cache. Damn you, Lee Cache. Damn you, Lee Cache. And we're back. Our film this week, a anthology of sorts, that is Trevisa, from producer Johnny Toe and directors Frank Hoy, Jevons Ao, and Vicky Wong. The story itself, a fictional crime thriller based around three real-life Hong Kong criminals. The film follows the exploits of uh, Kwai Ching Hong, played by Gordon Lam Katong, uh, Yip Kung Fun, Yip Kwok Fun, excuse me, uh, played by Richie Ren, and Chuck Chi Kung, played by Jordan Chan. These three notorious men have each earned individual reputations for various crimes, and with the handover of Hong Kong back to China fast approaching, rumors of a super team team up uh, between these three kings of crime, uh, forming some kind of alliance for one final big score, begin to surface. At its heart, this is an anthology film of uh, mostly three unrelated stories with um, somewhat loose connections. And if you watch the trailer, you don't really get that sense. But if you think about films like the 2005 film About Love or the um, 2002 film Three, where you've got different directors, different stories, somewhat of a different tone, but you still get a sense of the, the, the connectivity there. Uh, at certain moments, this film kind of follows suit. So, um, Kevin, you, you mentioned that uh, uh, one of the critiques out there, I think, from Derek Ellie, actually talks a little bit about the English title. Yes, um, the English title Trevisa. Well, in Chinese, the film is called Xu Dai Jiu Feng, which means that um, a big tree attracts wind. So it's it's about like you know the bigger sort of someone is the more trouble they attract. The English one, um, the English title is a Sanskrit according to his review, a Sanskrit word denoting the Buddhist concept of the three poisons: bewilderment, greed, and hatred. And these are the roots of all human suffering. So a very very deep title from uh, according to Mister Ellie there. Yeah. So that's from um, Derek Ellie's review in his website is called SinoCinema.com. That's Sino-Cinema.com. Yeah. If you haven't taken a look, uh, jump over to that site and uh, look, dig into his review a little bit more. We basically follow these three characters for different periods of the film. It's not it's not completely solid sections. It does sort of intermix the narrative at times, um, but we do tend to spend a bit a bit longer with these characters at certain moments. So Gordon Lamb's character, Kwai Ching Hong, is actually based on the real criminal, uh, Kwai Ping Hong, who back in May of 2000, um, he and three other men were stopped by some plainclothes officers um, during a, some kind of police operation in Mong Kok. Uh, I think they ended up 
shooting um, the, the plainclothes officers. And so his notoriety um, sort of started from there. He was arrested then later in a big operation a couple years later, I think on Christmas Eve. To hear already, because this film is set in the pre-handover era, um, we you already get the sense that it is fictionalized, though it's kind of loot, you know, based in some ways on these these real people. This this particular character's notoriety really came to the forefront uh, long after the handover. A little bit closer to conception is Richie Wren's character of Yip Kwok Foon, who the actual um, criminal himself, Yip Kai Foon, um, was a very sort of brazen gangster. Um, he and his gang used to go out with AK-47s and they would rob gold shops in various parts of Hong Kong. They were notorious for actually just basically opening fire out on the street. And uh, some people said that they thought that the battles were actually for film shoots. And, uh, you know, they only <laughs> realized that uh, it wasn't actually a film, uh, I guess, so once things really got going. His career came to an end in uh, May of... Uh, 1996 when he was arrested following a gunfight in Kennedy Town and he was left paralyzed by that uh, firefight. Actually, um, um, Yip Kai Foon's uh, story, because he became a born-again Christian in jail, and that story is actually in a film called The Most Dangerous Criminal, directed by Sam Learn. Then we have Jordan Chan's character, uh, who plays a character called Chuck Chi Kung, based on Cheng Chi Kung who was known for being a mastermind for uh, kidnappings. And he kidnapped um, Walter Kwok and Victor Lai. Victor, or sorry, Victor Lee. Victor Lee is the son of Lee Ka-sing, one of the sons. Um, and he ended up getting quite a bit of a payout from those kidnappings. He was um, known to be very brazen in doing that too. And I think he did a couple others. And he, there, was a, there was rumor that he was planning to kidnap uh, Anson Chan, who was a figure, a very sort of high-profile figure um, before the handover in the Hong Kong government. So he was um, caught later and uh, I think uh, sentenced to death when he was um, up in mainland China. Um, so he didn't actually live to see sort of the period of uh, the Kwai-Ping the Hong character. So we get these different narratives kind of enmeshed within uh, this pre-handover time period. Though I did read something that said that um, he was he was targeting Anson Chan because she she uh, was responsible for the jailing of uh, Yip Kai Foon. So apparently he did know Yip Kai Foon. Yeah, it's uh, actually two of the three characters, uh, Yip Kai Foon. So in the opening of the film, Yip Kai Foon um, was seen robbing uh, a, a number of banks in Kwantong area. Um, that was in the early 90s. And actually, I lived in Kwantong. I was in school. Um, during that heist was happening um, in, in Hong Kong um, or actually down the street from where I was. But anyway, the uh, two of the three characters in real life, the real life characters actually worked together on that heist. Mm. And actually one, uh, one the, the other person I think is, is Chen Chi Kern, um, who thought that Yip Kai Fun was too brazen, too showy and, and too loud. So actually they stopped working together after that. Which is kind of interesting because when you get yeah. to the character portrayals, I think that... Uh, it's actually Jordan Chan's character who's the really sort of loud, boisterous character. Richie's character is a bit brazen, but he's uh, more in a sort of a, He's brazen you know, in his actions because he's action, like yeah. AK-47, you know, down the street kind of guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we get these three different characterizations for the three roles. Um, and the idea is that as they're each sort of progressing along their own narrative path, 
these rumors start emerging that um, they're going to, you know, sort of team up as a sort of super criminal team for one big heist before the handover. Because after the handover, you know, it's mainland China and everything's going to, you know, go to pot and they won't be, have these kind of opportunities that they have under the colonial capitalist system. So it's interesting that the rumors get started in part out of their own hands. They, they're not the ones that start them. And it's only once they hear the rumors that one of the characters actually starts to take the initiative to try and, and make it happen, even though they're kind of all on their own jobs or all doing their own thing. So yeah, Jordan's character tends to be over the top and he um, is turned to to bring in the comic relief for the role. And I, I think he might be a little bit off-putting for some people who are much more engaged with the more serious characters. Richie, as Kevin said, much more action-oriented. He kind of has this middle ground where he gold goes from gold robberies to goods smuggling because they're, you know, interestingly, they end up make, being able to make a lot more money. Well, he was trying to go legit, actually. Yeah. It was considered, quote-unquote, legit. Yeah, but then he realizes he has to deal with the bureaucracy and, and he's just becoming like a manager and um, he kind of uh, doesn't want to get lost in, in that. Uh, he doesn't want to lose his sort of old self. On the third one, we have sort of the darkest path and that is the Gordon Lamb character where he's going to stay with a friend played by Philip Kung um, who's a single father living with his young daughter but actually he's got... Uh, a further intention. He's there to, uh, you know, knock over another gold shop. Some of the exchanges in this one, I think, are some of the best moments of the film, especially with uh, Philip Kung's character, who continues to impress, you know, for me, whenever he's in a minor role, he really simply nails it. And there are some really quiet and tense moments between these characters where it's just a lot of, like, facial, you know, acting and uh, expressiveness that's going on. And for me, that those were some of the, the, the best, but also some of the tensest scenes. And I think he, um, I'd be surprised if he's not up for a, a supporting actor award this, you know, this time next year or so. As a pre-handover film, there are really quite a few reality clips thrown in. We have, uh, for example, Mag Margaret Thatcher's speech about the Joint Sino Declaration. Um, there's some footage from the handover ceremony, and that plays... Uh, you know, it, it plays a big part. And as an anthology, I do think that the three directors handle their segments well. Um, I was a bit more partial, I think, just because of the performances to Frank Hoy's segment, who does the Gordon Lamb uh, storyline. But I was equally impressed with um, uh, Vicky Wong and also uh, Jevin Zhao. Now, Jevin Zhao is one of the directors from 10 years. Is that right, Kevin? He directed the uh, the taxi driver one called Dialect. Yeah, uh, he's yeah. also a writer. He was actually a writer on uh, for for Milky Way. He co-wrote Romancing in Thin Air uh, and another Milky Way production. I think yeah. at least two Milky Way productions. And so he he does the the Richie Wren story, and then Vicky Wong is in charge of um, Jordan segment. Quite a few cameos in the film too. People like Tommy Wong, Lam Shut, Frank Eaton, um, Vincent Wan. Quite a few others that you know if you're a, a regular fan of Hong Kong cinema, you'll notice people in, in various capacities. And it's always good, you know, when these these folks sort of pop up on the screen and you can say, oh, yeah, they're still working. It's a strong film. I found all the segments to be entertaining. They are criminals, though, so you never truly are rooting for any of them. Um, I ended up finding that I, the one character that I did root for the most was the Philip Kung character more than anything else. It's also another pre-handover film. 
And this is, I, a lot of critics have come out, uh, some of the reviews I've read and things so far have been very positive about this film. It, it is, you know, I, I would say it is one of the stronger films this year, though I wouldn't say it's, for me, the best film this year, but it is a, a really good film. But it does, you know, call into question, is are we only going to get films like this set in this time period? Is, you know, in 10 years from now, if we were going to do another 10 year segment, um, are we still, are they still going to be making and talking about these pre-handover films? Is this the new sort of golden narrative era, much like, you know, TV dramas love to do things set in the Qing dynasty? Is this the golden era for crime and the golden era, because it was the golden era for film, you know, I mean, the, the, the 80s and the 90s, the build up to the handover is when we get, for many of us, some of the most classic uh, Hong Kong cinema because you have so much of it you know there was so much going on I hope not because I mean I I, I want there to be this kind of creative flexibility in the post handover era beyond that it's it's a it's a very good film very entertaining a um, little bit violent at times um, but not overly so so yeah I'd say it's definitely a, a, one of the films to watch this year Kevin Oh, I've got quite a few things to say about this film. Um, first of all, actually, the you talk about 997 and why, why actually the same reason why a lot of directors, Hong Kong directors, when they go to China, they end up doing period film because censorship. It is a co-production film. Um, it has a Chinese producer, Hyun Films, which I've been working with um, uh, Milky Way since Drug War. And the film is a co-production, believe it or not. And the way that they get away with it is because... Chinese censorship is very lenient for films set in Hong Kong before 1997. Um, essentially saying that, oh, it's before the handover. It's not under Chinese sovereignty. So therefore, go ahead and make whatever the hell you want as long as it's not political. So in a way, they sort of let them get away with it. Um, although there's that whole segment about Chinese corrupted uh, government officials. I have no idea how they, get, how they got that past uh, censorship in China. Uh, even there's no release, they say, in China. It is a co-production film. On the surface, it's about, it is about the handover pre-handover period it's about handover anxiety it is about how people view the future their future at the point the uncertainty that and it's actually a, a makeup a big part of early milky way nihilistic films uh that sort of uncertainty the sort of uh anxiety about the handover um then this film does sort of play into that anxiety but i think that this film is uh and bear with me here i think the film is more grim than 10 years since we're talking about 10 years in this in this episode i think this film is one of the most grim films about hong kong uh, i've seen recently because i think that they're taking that 97 anxiety and actually reflecting the anxieties of people today and the film actually lays out three paths um about the future of hong kong of people a future of hong kongers one is you either stay quiet and try and live life as like a hermit uh essentially just sort of your head down all the time just like the gordon lamb character or you try to live you try to you know compromise and try to go to china and you try to play along the system and again also with your head down but but trying for bigger things but with your head down like the richie ran character or your kaifun character or you try to go flamboyant and you try to make every try to do something big and and and, and like the like jordan chan character now if you know the ending of the film now you know why I'm saying that it's grim because, well, actually that's kind of a brilliant thing is that they're based on true stories. So beyond the fact that it's a co-production, in the true stories, they all get caught. They all have unhappy 
endings. So it is completely true to history for them to have unhappy endings or to have, you know, to be caught in the end. And yet it actually totally fits the co-production requirement. And it totally fits the narrative that they're trying to, to say about Hong Kong. The grim, the really grim outlook of Hong Kong, which is saying that you can go all three ways, but, you know, Hong Kong, you're screwed. And I think that's that's kind of the beautiful thing about this film. It is it is so well calculated to have to work on so many different layers. And I think that the fact that the, the Milky Way editing team turned three different films shot by three different sets of people into one coherent film the way that it is so coherent here. I, actually, if you didn't tell me that it's made by in, made in three separate sections, I would have no idea it was made as three separate films. I thought it worked perfectly as, a, as, a, as one film. And it is put together... With, with such expert precision that I think that it, it, it's already a lock to win Best Editing next year uh, at the Hong Kong Film Awards. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that I, I love this film um, and, and how, how, many ma- how many different layers it works on. And of course, everyone kind of knows that the entire section about Richie trying to make it in China, um, going against all that bureaucracy and all those, all those obstacles, essentially is the, 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 the difficulties of a Hong Kong filmmaker trying to make it in China. Jevons Ao actually tried to also express that in, in his 10 years short about trying to adapt to a Mandarin uh, uh, system as a Cantonese speaker. Um, so it is totally in line with what he's been doing. And I think it is a, a beautiful piece of work, uh, the fact that Mukui can get away with this. You know, I absolutely love the way this movie worked out to be. It's great. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit kongcast.com for more. All right, you have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. And, of course, we have a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at kongcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash kongcast. You can email us, that is eastscreen at gmail.com. We would love to hear any feedback that you have for us or any questions. We, you know, talk about it here on the show. Uh, you can also check us out over at Facebook, Facebook at East S West S. You can also follow along with Kevin and what he's doing, the things he's writing about, the things he's blogging about, the things he's doing in his day job, or the stuff that he's doing when he's festival hopping. So, Kevin, where can they find out more about you? Well, I don't actually festival hop anymore. But anyway, uh, uh, um, yeah, you can read my work uh, on the Discovery Magazine and Silk Road Magazine uh, on Cathay Pacific and Dragonair Flights. Or you could get the iPad app for Discovery. Look for iPad um, oh, sorry, go on your iPad, go to the iTunes store, look for Discovery, and you'll find the app, and you'll read, be able to see sort of my columns and then some of uh, the columns from our great contributors uh, on the magazine. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, The Golden Rock. That's one word, at The Golden Rock. Or you could email me at thegoldenrock at gmail.com. All right, excellent. Our next show, episode 189, as I said, um, haven't really decided on what we're going to be covering because we do have... Uh, a couple new films this week. We've got, uh, let's see, Robbery is coming out, and there's also another, I guess it's another kind of anthology film called Good Take, 
Oh, um, I can tell you what this film that, is. That is coming out. Um, but we also have a bit of a backlog that I'd like to get to, too. So um, we'll see what we can do schedule-wise to try and get some more episodes out. And not really sure what I'm going to set as the next episode. But there will be something that we will talk about. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying, don't do the crime if you can't do the time before the handover. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. 